Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. What's on my mind is really what a green recovery will mean. Is such a thing possible? And, and will we, yeah, will we mess it up really? Will, do we really know what we want from a green recovery and can we deliver it? And will we get beguiled by the idea of large infrastructure capital projects or can we do something different? If we start to think of climate change as having all of those multiple causes, the idea that you could govern it in a singular way and that you could govern it through a certain number of discrete instruments becomes very difficult to imagine. And all of the consequences of that then you know, unravel in, in ways that then would make it ungovernable and where the consequences could be very unjust. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Harriet Bulkley to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Professor Bulkley holds joint appointments as Professor in the Department of Geography, Durham University, at the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development, Utrecht University. Her research focuses on environmental governance and the politics of climate change, energy, and emerging urban management approaches to climate change. She's published eight books and more than 60 research papers. So thank you very much, Harriet, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks, Fergal. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been reading some of your research and your books recently, uh, very rich areas, very, very interesting. And I'm very much looking forward to speaking to you, particularly about climate change governance, not something I know very much about. Um, But maybe just by way of background, if you could just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do and what's in your mind. Sure. Um, So, well, yeah, by way of background, I'm an academic geographer. I work uh, in the geography department at Durham University here in the UK. I have a joint appointment with Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And I've, I guess I've always been a geographer, really. I mean, I loved geography at school. I'm probably just definitely a bit of a nerd. But uh, I did also take science-based A-levels, and I took a degree in geography, which required me to study the physical aspects of geography alongside social sciences. So I feel like at least up until my undergraduate degree, I had quite a, a good overall knowledge of both the kind of environmental science side of, of the issues that I'm interested in and also the kind of social science side. But since taking my PhD, which was on Australia's climate politics, that's a subject that just keeps giving as well, um, then I've certainly focused much more on questions of, of the politics and governance of environmental issues. So, yeah, that's yeah. my speciality. Yes, wonderful. I'd like just to set the scene a little bit, uh, not an easy question at the beginning, but uh, clearly uh, we're facing tremendous number of interlocking environmental, social, other other challenges right now, not just uh, in the middle of the, the COVID crisis. Uh, and I was wondering what in particular is on your mind right now? Mm, uh, yeah, it is. It You know, it's one of those, uh, you know, perils of the job in a way is that Things like climate change are pretty much always on your mind in one way or another, and, and um, increasingly so, I think, of course, in the public gaze over the last 20 years that I've been working in this field. But right now, I guess, what's on my mind is really what a green recovery will mean. Is such a thing possible? And, and will, we, yeah, will we mess it up, really? Will, 
do we really know what we want from a green recovery and can we deliver it and will we get beguiled by the idea of large infrastructure capital projects or can we do something different that's definitely on my mind and I suppose also you know there's kind of continued discourse both in the press and within politics and a whole series of kinds of uh, silver bullet or moonshot programs for for addressing climate change and nature at the moment and I and I wonder you know what what we've learned about the fact that probably those kind of approaches to solving challenges like climate change are not really going to last or sustain us in the long term so those things are on my mind um, I think at the moment as well as uh, yeah just more general reflections I'm sure that all of us are having about what if any kind of normal life will be like in the future and for me I suppose that's particularly about what it will mean to live in the city in the future um, after Covid because I'm, I'm very interested in questions around urban sustainability and I think there might be some rather profound shifts happening. Yes, yes, real issues. And you've been looking at the climate for decades now, but there does seem to be an incredible increasing momentum about the scale of the problem and a lot of shouting and then the urgent need for solutions. Could you just talk a little bit about that, that sense of urgency, the, the whole question of science communications, obviously very freighted in terms of, you know, getting across the message, talking in terms of probability that people will understand, also getting people to pay attention, then people are also exhausted by hearing all of this. But from a policy perspective, there are issues involved uh, in terms of how, I guess, something would come on to the whole question of governance, but uh, how that's managed, whether we have the kind of governance, what kind of governance would be appropriate for, for projects that need to be done suddenly tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there there is a lot of discussion around urgency, and climate is an urgent problem. I think it's an urgent problem because a lot of the decisions that we make today will have repercussions over time, right? So, I mean, the way you know, I hope we're not trying to build houses now that we're going to pull down in ten years' time and build new, better ones then. You know, the infrastructure that we're building and the, the ways in which we're making decisions about you know where we get our resources from, the you know the minerals that we you know, used to power our new solar power systems and all the rest of these things. These are all decisions that have really long-term impacts. And so in a sense, the urgency is because of the long-term nature of the, of the challenge, right? But I think in some senses, it's a mistake to think that we should govern for urgency, right? Because when we think, okay, it's a really urgent problem, we need, we need solutions now, we need solutions that can work now, we tend, uh, you know, again, to kind of focus on solutions that are large, that are um, technical and that um, have potentially significant consequences for very large numbers of society and often attract a lot of political opposition. And yeah, to date, those kinds of approaches to governing climate change have not proven to be very successful. I mean, you could think, reflect on the idea of a carbon tax, which has often been suggested as a kind of way in which you could govern carbon. You could govern climate through the use of a carbon tax. And Maybe this is my roots in doing my uh, PhD in Australia, but the debate on a carbon tax in Australia has been rumbling on since 1994 to very, very little success. And I, I still, it strikes me as, you know, sometimes we might have to let go of those ideas that urgent policy responses are the way to address urgent policy problems. Yes, I mean, you mentioned uh, that these types of projects generate opposition, but is there, is there not a broader question as well as whether, you know, how effective they are, uh, how they impact the people on the ground, the social aspects of it in terms of 
the transition thing, just transition questions like that, which don't don't seem to get a, quite enough attention under normal time frames. But when everything's urgent, may may get less. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the as soon as things become urgent, then it, it can be that that the the very sort of nub of the climate problem comes to trump everything else. But I think this is one of the aspects of my work maybe on, on governance that I've been trying to make the case for, which is that climate change isn't a singular problem, right? It's not, it's not a problem like um, nitrates in water or something like this. It, it's, not just, it's not to be found in a singular place and from a relatively few causes. It's a multiple problem. It's a problem with the way in which we um, use energy in our homes, how we heat our hot water, what our diets are like, how we build our buildings, how we get around. And in this way, I think, you know, if we start to think of climate as having climate change as having all of those multiple causes, the idea that you could govern it in a singular way and that you could govern it through a certain number of discrete instruments becomes very difficult to imagine. And all of the consequences of that then, you know, unravel in, in ways that then would make it ungovernable and where the consequences could be very unjust, as you were saying. So that, that's why I think we need instead to kind of think about governing climate change as a matter not so much of control, but as a matter of persuasion of the way in which we conduct our lives and also you know, entering the climate change problem through all of these other windows. So rather than coming at it as a climate change problem, coming at it as a problem of warm homes, easy ways to get around which don't cause air pollution, ways in which we like to see our rivers uh, you know daylighted in cities so that we can you know make our cities more resilient all of these other ways are going to i think be much more successful ways of responding to climate change yes that's very interesting and i I just did an interview in fact with professor aaron stibby who's an eco-linguist and he talks about this question of of how you frame it and and he, he, he says that for example calling it a problem automatically means that you're looking for solutions yeah. uh, and he wonders he says, what happens if you call it a predicament you know just yeah. thinking about it in different ways like that that bring you to different different ways of you know responding to as you say the multiple faces that the, the various different environmental challenges we're, we're, we're facing very interesting yeah now, what, what is climate change governance and why does it matter yeah, well, I mean, governing climate change means how do we manage our society's response to it, right? But governing and governance as a word is to me always very fascinating because it is a particular kind of way, a particular form that society takes, a particular kind of response. Um, it's a, Governing means that we are using power, some kind or another, um, but it also means that it's authorised. So we govern... To, to be governed means to uh, rule with authority and to have authority, you need to have consent of some kind or other. And so governing is a particular kind of form of power. It's a particular kind of social relation. There are other ways in which, you know, we could address climate change through violence or dictatorship or <laughs> through incentives or all sorts of different things, which are not, you know, they don't reside in the, in the idea of governance. So governance is this, we, we consent to be governed, to be directed, to change our behaviour in certain ways. Um, and we do so because those who seek to govern for us and with us have a certain authority to do so. And that, I think, is where, you know, where does the authority come from? Who should be doing the governing? Is this just a matter for state actors or do other non-state actors also have authority? 
Um, so do communities have authority to consider how they would like to govern their own energy systems, for example? Or do private sector actors also have, you know, they also have authority over how their value chains are governed? And to me, that's a very expansive sense of where the action is then needed for um, climate action. It is not only then to be found, if you like, in the corridors of power or in the negotiating halls of the kind of UN system. Governing can be found in all sorts of different places. That's very interesting. But as you've, you've presented the development of the go- governance over time, to some extent, it has been embedded in a, you know, in the IPCC and multi-state kind of governance system. Can you talk a little bit about the original climate governance architectures? Give us an overview of that and, and maybe some of the benefits or shortcomings, do you think, of that approach? And then maybe we can talk about where you think it's interesting to see where governance needs to go or we need to think about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the IPCC, was initially formed in in the late 80s to try and provide an authoritative voice um, from science to governments to enable them to act on climate change. And that led in the early 1990s to the agreement of something called the Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, agreed in 1992 in Rio. And that agreement then has set the kind of stage for everything that's followed from that in terms of, you know, people might have heard of the Kyoto Agreement in the late 1990s, and then, of course, the Paris Agreement more recently, all take place within this governance architecture of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, that that architecture has been, you know, really helpful, and I, I'm sort of smiling to myself now because it's, it's an ongoing conversation that I have with colleagues in international relations that, Sometimes as geographers, you kind of come onto this stage, we forget that, you know, these architectures have been really important in terms of actually putting this agenda on the stage and at the forefront of a lot of politicians' minds. And I, I wouldn't want to dismiss all of the work that has gone into, the, into this uh, process over 30 years now to create a, a space in which how we should as a society respond to climate change has become really highly visible. But of course, you know, what we witnessed with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is that it's only been able to hold together a certain number of interests over time. There's been a lot of resistance from some um, national governments to being bound by the commitments within it. Um, progress today in terms of meeting targets that have been set has been relatively slow. Um, and we witnessed a kind of breakdown of this um, set of, of agreements in the late 2000s in Copenhagen, where governments really failed to agree the next step forward. And from that failure of the Copenhagen summit in the late 2000s, what came from that was then an idea that we needed to really reverse the process in a way and and bring national governments and a whole set of other non-state actors, including cities and private sector actors around the table to, to, to raise their levels of ambition rather than saying, you have to do this, instead asking them, what is going to be your contribution to this problem? And that's the Paris Climate Change Agreement is based on this new kind of architecture where national governments determine their own contributions they're going to make to the overall climate agreement and states and regional governments and private sector actors are also encouraged to make their own commitments and that everyone is holding each other to account for the level of those commitments. So it's more of a kind of, in some sense, more of a bottom-up approach now in the Paris Agreement. And I think 
that in a way reflects this change of realizing that you can't direct and control climate governance from from a central point globally, but instead you have to try and amass as many commitments as you can um, from the ground up. Right. And and what are some of the criteria to evaluate good or effective governance? Yeah, well, so when we think about whether governance is being effective or not, in, in a sense, I think we need to know whether it's working or, or, or do we have actors participating? Are they making more ambitious commitments? Are they effectively realising those commitments on the ground? And I think, you know, this is where I'll get on to one of my pet topics, which is how cities have been responding to climate change now. It's a long story about how I came to be working on cities and climate change, which basically involves an ac- accidentally stumbling on it as a topic, as many good topics, I think, are. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, which happened in Newcastle in Australia when I was doing my PhD work. I uh, found this coal town, Newcastle, just about three hours north of Sydney, was taking you know some extraordinary measures for the time in the mid-1990s around climate change. Um, especially extraordinary when you consider it was the largest coal port in the world at the time. And I found my uh, my sort of grounding of what cities should or shouldn't be doing on climate change quite moved by that. But anyway, to cut a long story short, what we've seen over the last 30 years is more and more cities globally making commitments on climate change. So now we have about 10,000 or more cities um, who have made some kind of commitment to reduce their contribution to the global problem of climate change so this is not cities making commitments to protect themselves against climate change but this is cities making commitments to contribute to a global effort and i think what's striking about that is that one of the only groups of actors that over the last 30 years have said yes please can we do some more on climate change we've seen lots of other actors you know until recent times been quite reluctant to make that level of commitment and i think that tells you something about the fact that cities climate governance has been quite successful it's allowed cities to kind of enter into the idea of governing climate change in their own terms. It's shown them what the co-benefits or the additional things they can gain for their own communities, for their own cities could be. And that has driven higher levels of ambition, higher levels of action, financial savings that have been then ploughed back into further action, so on and so forth. Now, of course, not all cities are meeting all of their commitments. Yes. But at the same time, I think it can be regarded as a successful form of climate governance just because of the its, its expansive nature and also how its levels of ambition have increased over time. Yes, I, I'd like to come back to that. It's very interesting. You, you're talking about this bottom-up, more bottom-up type approach. I mean, some people have criticised the, the Paris Agreement for being pretty weak in many ways, and it's not we're not going to hit the, the targets and, you know, criticise it on that basis. What's your view? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I mean, it it is weak. We're not going to meet the targets that science tells us that we need to meet. But on the other hand, I don't really see an option through which we will meet those targets. And maybe some people would regard that as pessimistic. Um, But I I regard it as more of a pragmatic perspective. I mean, I I know that these targets, you know, uh, are, are important in terms of what's happening to the world's atmosphere and what's happening, you know, what's going to happen to... Uh, to many people's lives, to many people's livelihoods, and of course to you know, of course to our our own our families in the future, and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I'm not in any sense dismissing the science, but I am saying that h- harder measures for more uh, nation states and companies and so on to meet now have also not proven to be successful. 
So when people say the Paris Agreement's not enough, I said, well, I, yes, but what would what would be politically possible, financially viable, that is enough. And so far, I haven't seen anybody offer that up. Yes. And, yes. and I think that's, that's, that's the issue for me. I mean, you know, I, when I talk about this, I often um, use the analogy of gender equality, actually, because I think it's a much closer parallel to the question of the climate condition that we live with than almost anything else. I mean, the Gender Equality Pay Act came in in the 1970s in the UK. We still don't have gender equality in pay in the UK some 50 years later, but we have a much better equality than we used to do. And we have many more opportunities for women in the workforce than we used to do as well. But it's something you have to work on every day, gender equality. It's not something that you you think, right, okay, we're going to, you know, we need to be gender equal by X date. And if we're not, it will be disastrous for lots of women's lives and for families across the UK, uh, which it is. Uh, and then if we don't meet that target, well, we failed or, you know, Instead, what we do is we resolve every day to work on gender equality, right? We have to, you have to do it every day. And, and the, you might not ever get to where you need to be, but you keep going. And I, that's my kind of approach to how we need to govern the climate. Yes, very interesting targets. I, I, I spoke to Mike Hume about this before. Can you talk a little bit about targets, I guess, underlying it? There's this kind of technocratic approach, uh, which some people have accused i guess of the, the ipcc and these these processes of, of being embodied in a kind of technocratic approach yeah i mean targets are really interesting for me you know they're another yeah i know this is another sort of academic <laughs> nerdy thing to be really interested in but i mean we set all sorts of targets for ourselves right i mean i always this is another kind of analogy it's a sort of new year's resolution i mean many of us have set those and, and not necessarily not necessarily kept them all the time but they nonetheless perform a really important function for us to have those targets to have those goals because they give us direction right so, so the direction that targets and goals give us, I think, is really important. But the precision of them, I think, is where you can get lost because so much can come down to then a focus on can we precisely know the carbon content of everything that we're doing? Can we measure it, monitor it, make it visible and take action in accordance with it so that we can actually prove that we've met that target in its exacting detail? Whereas, you know, an 80 you know an 80 percent rule here would say right well we basically know that um cars produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and if we had fewer of them we would have fewer greenhouse gas emissions now we can get on and do that without having to monitor and measure every single car journey that's ever taken right uh, so so there's a balance there between the kind of goals and targets is setting a direction of travel and as a means of guiding and orientating us and keeping us on track and the precision and then the sort of endless attention to monitoring um, and the mechanics of that that it produces, which I think can be unhelpful. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, very interesting. And I'm sure there's lots more we could say there. It's a big topic and, uh, yeah, and very important because with all these figures are bandied around the whole time, 1.5 and 2 and uh, percent and, you know, the 400 and 415 and, you know, the price per million and all these statistics and so forth. And it's a very scientific approach and there doesn't seem to be a parallel or equivalent 
ethical formulation yeah. of, of these questions, the social, yeah, e- yeah. ethical. Well, yeah, what would be a just climate to be living in, right? So yes. what would be a just climate to be living in? And what would it mean? And what does it mean in terms of the actions that we take that they are also just in, in pursuing that goal? Yes. Uh, some of my colleagues in the US have been doing work on how urban responses to climate change may be in themselves generating injustice. And is now a very interesting and I think difficult debate for those of us in the environmental movement to, you know, an environmental activist and environmental academics and so on to, to engage with, which is about whether injustices are being done through the name of climate change. So there's concerns about green gentrification there's, and there's also concerns about environmental or climate racism or some of my colleagues in, in the US will, will also use the term climate apartheid, which myself, I, I, don't, I don't agree in, in the sense that we should be using that term to describe the conditions. But there are very real concerns that um, communities... You know, low-income communities, minority communities are being unjustly required to either move out of the way of infrastructure projects or be, um, you know, economically disadvantaged by actions that are being taken in the name of climate change. And I, I do think that's you know, a very difficult set of debates for us to engage with, but a really important set. How much progress would you say has actually been made in terms of a bottom-up approach? I mean, what kinds of organizations or communities do you see becoming involved in the decision-making process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we when we look at this kind of bottom-up approach, there's maybe two different scales of it. There's one where national governments themselves are trying to determine what they can bring to the table for climate change. And, and that area, you know, we've talked about it a little bit about, you know, how does how do we make sure that all those nation states that can do the, the most that they can are really being held to account? And I think a lot of NGOs and a lot of other, you know, a lot of uh, the media organizations and indeed the IPCC are kind of focused on that, on those nationally determined contributions and whether or not they'll be sufficient to meet one and a half degrees. And, and as we were just discussing, but there's a whole nother level of kind of bottom up action going on uh, an area of work that, that I've just, describe as governance experimentation, where you have multiple different kinds of forms of interventions that are emerging, some of them driven by communities, but a lot of them also driven by coalitions of local governments and businesses, businesses and communities, businesses on their own, all sorts of different kinds of interventions, which are all about trying out how you do business or how you how you live, how you do development differently in a climate change world. And I think this kind of this kind of ferment, if you like, this kind of froth of, of experimentation you can find pretty much anywhere that you look. Um, the question about how do you decide whether it is or isn't successful and what is it or isn't coming out of it is more challenging because there's so many different things to, to evaluate. I think in some areas we can see like uh, the uptake of solar panels, uh, both community level, you know, renewable electricity powering businesses. You know, we can we can really see in renewables that this form of of intervention based governance has really really worked. It's been supported by state led policies in some areas, but the you know the really now rise of renewable electricity is being driven by all sorts of different processes only some of which I think have, have been led by national governments. 
Um, but then when we look at other things like electric mobility, I think that's also a really interesting area. We see all sorts of different experiments with electric mobility happening now, um, whether that's car share schemes, whether it's electric scooters, whether it's, uh, you know, just the installation of electric charging infrastructure um, being done by businesses and communities and local authorities globally. Uh, I think that's a really interesting space to be watching. And then you know, a project that I'm working on at the moment uh, is looking at how nature-based solutions are being used uh, by all these different kinds of actors as well as means of both uh, addressing climate change but wider sustainable development goals. And in a survey that we did of 100 cities in Europe, we found a 1,000 examples without really having to try very hard. My team will probably say that was not fair. We tried extremely hard. <laughs> we did. We had uh, 25 master's students working in 16 different languages doing this work for six weeks. Uh, was a very big effort to pull all the data together. But what I mean by that is that it, it doesn't take you long to find interventions that are happening in a whole host of different kinds of cities across Europe. I mean, these are not, you know, these are not just the Paris and Milan and Copenhagen kind of cities. These are or in Hungary or Leipzig in Germany as well, you know, places which are medium-sized, important regional cities, but which are not, you know, they're not doing this for their kind of global showmanship of it, right? They're doing it because it makes sense for their cities and for their communities. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think there's a huge amount going on. Keeping track of it, understanding what its effects are is a wholly different, <laughs> wholly different ballgame. <laughs> Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. So what would a, a fully developed bottom-up approach to dealing with climate look like and, and what do you think needs to happen? Yeah, I think... Rather than contrasting a kind of bottom up with a top down approach here, I, th I think what we what we're looking at and a lot of people have been writing about over the last decade and more is this question of trying to establish a multi-level governance system where you've got action take the right action taking place at the right levels, if you like. So we definitely need the, you know, the international agreements in terms of them setting out the kind of the course of action, the direction of travel, you know, providing an overall kind of compass to, to, to guide what we're doing. But at the same time, we've got to recognise that there are multiple actors who've got both the capacity and the legitimacy and the resources to act at multiple levels in the system. And then if we don't take them on board and allow them to have the space to act, then we, we won't get as much out of this as, as we need to, you know, to go forward. So I think what, what we what we need to do, and I, and I think there's, there's a lot of, um, in the climate space, you can see that this has been really, a, you know, in, in many ways has been one of the big sort of outcomes of the Paris Agreement in 2015 has been creating a platform where all sorts of non-state actors and all of the actions that they're taking can be recorded, can be evaluated, and can be... Um, you know, held 
to account alongside national action. It's called the NASCAR platform, which is a bit of a tricky kind of acronym, but it al- at least it allows us to see all of the pledges and all of the actions that those actors say from the corporate world or the finance sector or from, from cities and regions, what they're doing. And then UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, every couple of years does an assessment of how far they, you know, what those actions actually mean on the ground. Are they real and how will they contribute? Um, and it's getting that, you know, that you can see that then in broad scale, that we have that information, we know what's happening, but it's getting those different actors to then work with one another to overcome the gaps that still remain, right? So you see a lot of national policies, national contribution plans for climate action still don't include what it is that cities are going to be doing. They don't make room for them. Um, Whereas if they were to include them and think, okay, well, the cities are doing this, these are our actions. There's an obvious gap here where more national policy was on say the transport theme then cities would be able to take more action than they're already declaring and you'd get more synergies from that so i think in in broad brush strokes we're beginning to see the emerging picture of what this multi-level governance system is doing and what it's contributing but in specific contexts we're not getting enough synergy between these different elements to really make it gather the kind of momentum we need to actually govern effectively across these levels a work in progress (laughs) yes Yes, yeah, so I'd like to come back to the cities in in a moment. I just wonder, can we talk a little bit about power mm. in the, uh, you know, it's the, the, the idea of governments coming together, the idea of supranational governance, these kind of uh, frameworks and ideas. When you start to go to more, should we say, fragmented sites of, of, of action and power and, and, and powerlessness as well, how does that leave us? Uh, I mean, there's some people who who, who would argue that you know, some of the problems we're facing right now is inextricably linked to a particular stage of capitalism, of corporate power, and huge power of, of financial organizations in various different ways. Now, these are very big organizations, massive amounts of capital and, and massive amounts of political power, in, 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 particularly in certain countries. How do we ad- address that question? Mm. Yeah, no, it's a really it's a really interesting question. I think I think for me, the question the question of the fragmentation of climate governance, its multiplicity, is actually one very much bound up with the idea of power, which is that to say power itself is extremely uneven, and and it is found in all all of the different places that you just mentioned. You know, it's found in in the actions of the finance sector, in institutional investors. It's found in national governments, but also in communities and local spaces. And and for me, if we want to govern climate change, we need to access all of those forms of power and bring them towards the same kinds of ends. And we might need to be less concerned about whether they are forms of power that arise from a kind of capitalist economic position or forms of power that arise from a kind of local democracy forms of power that arise from the direct capacity of individuals to make a difference where they are. Those are all useful forms of power that can be brought together towards climate change ends, I think. Of course, they will be... That sounds a bit abstract. Yeah, it does. Well, I'm... I mean, Shell have just had a campaign on social media to try and say, you know, to get people to say, what can you do or what were you willing to do to yeah, you know, yeah. 
stop climate change? I mean, this is huge. It's surely a really important question. We know there's been vested, you know, vested power, vested interests. We know that the, the, the fossil fuel industry has financed massive campaigns of disinformation. We know what's going on at a corporate level with these oil companies. To, to kind of include it in a general, you know, list of different ways of engaging of different kind of sources of power. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, well, I, 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 take, I take that point. I mean, I think, but it, it's not only Shell who has played the, this is an individual choice card, but every national government has played that card as well. Of course, uh, there's the question of power and responsibility. And we've certainly seen people's behavior change quite significantly. But there's also economic interests, I guess, that would have us focus on our role as individual consumers uh, creating these problems rather than trying to look uh, at these at these problems from a more systemic perspective. Absolutely. But there are also economic interests who would have us focus on on the fact that those corporations need to change. And I think that's what I'm trying to say. However abstractly I might have started off with my with my response to you, is to say that, you know, not all of capitalism is the same. And some of capitalists' interests are lie completely in addressing climate change because otherwise they're going to be out of business, right? So so that limited to a few companies that have a specific interest. No, I, I mean, so, okay, let's take the whole of the food production sector, um, for example, or if you like to um, go a little bit deeper into the capitalist economy, then the Dutch National Bank just uh, published a document which showed that at least uh, 50% of its, in, uh, of its uh, assets were at risk from both the climate change and the loss of nature, right? So that yeah. so so I'm not just talking about a handful of companies here that are involved in renewable energy technologies, not at all. I'm talking about the the vast majority of the economy that is completely dependent on having a stable uh, climate system and stable ecosystem services in order to function properly. And that is the vast majority of of the of the climate. <laughs> that's the vast majority of the economy, and that's why you've seen, you know, I mean, f- for good or ill. You see companies such as Walmart in the U.S. saying that it wants to become a regenerative company. You see Google saying that it wants to uh, make make good the carbon that it's used for the last twenty or thirty years. You know, you see uh, you know H and M and IKEA uh, really pioneering on on different kinds of models, of, like IKEA becoming a furniture lending store rather than a sales store. Right. So what I'm trying to say is that. Um, Yes, there are significant vested interests in making climate change a problem that individuals have to solve through their own good consumption choices. And and I have very little time for the idea that climate change is a problem that can be solved by individuals, actually. But I have quite a lot more time for the idea that there are some interests in the capital economy to whom we should be engaging with towards this kind of end. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's been a lot of what the sustainability agenda podcast's been about trying to you know understand the the you know big players in the economy and what their interests are and and you know and the way they're moving and uh, I, I think that is very interesting um I, I just did an interview with Joel Bakan who who wrote the, the the original book on the corporation and his new book has just come out called the new corporation but he takes a, a very different view of uh, the subtitle of the book will give you a sense of where he's coming from is why good corporations are bad for democracy yeah. But I hear what you're saying there in terms of the the, the progress 
the movement. And I suppose part of the this idea that you know companies realize that they need a stable economy and a stable situation. I suppose there, you know, some economists would argue that corporations are great externalizing machines. So the degree to which they have to carry the burden is is another matter. So just going back to this question of this more, I suppose, I don't know whether you call it a balanced approach to governance, but certainly this growth of this more bottom-up type approach. What, 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 What needs to happen here? What makes you optimistic? What is the direction of travel here? Yeah, I, I think in terms of what makes me optimistic is the fact that of, of its expansion, of the fact that in some senses, and again, you know, my, my, you know, most of my expertise is derived here from, from working at the city scale. And maybe that is gen- generally because I'm an optimistic person and that makes me feel more optimistic. Is that, I mean, in some, in some senses, there are very few places now where climate change is in, in some sense on the agenda. Um, you know whether it's whether it's to do with the new mobility strategy, whether it's to do with c- questions about how urban development expansion will happen, and so on and so forth. And I don't just mean that in in the global north, although that's probably easy to say. I think also many many cities in the global south are now beginning to consider what it will mean to have you know a, a good and functioning city into a climate change world. And many of the actors who support the development of the of cities in those places, and, and you know, including a lot of the, the development banks, um, United Nations agencies, and so on and so forth, are now really trying to work in partnership with those cities to to develop, you know, climate resilient futures for those places. And and I, I yeah. you know, that makes me optimistic because I think ten years ago, you know, those yeah. those questions about yeah climate change and development were separated right so there was a whole set of people interested in climate change a whole set of other people interested in development and i think now we can see those agendas coming together in ways that that can be positive with all the caveats that i said earlier about the potential for doing injustice in the name of climate change still you know very much there it has to be watched but nonetheless i think the coming together of those agendas and and the channeling of of finance towards trying to support places which need the support in, in getting this right is very important. So I think some of those things make me feel optimistic. So, yeah, as ever, often, you know, when you say what needs to be done next, I mean, the answer is money. I mean, you know, we've been talking a little bit about that in terms of capital interest, but it's also yeah. about, you know, where where states and, and choose to, to put their finances, where development banks choose to put their finances as well. And we have, you know, a, num- a number like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Redevelopment now pledging that, you know, 50% or more of its projects will have to be, you know, green finance. You know, there'll have to be financing pro- programs that are delivering for climate and for nature on the ground. I mean, that I think is an extraordinary step, really. I mean, just, yeah, even if, even if they don't do it in the way that environmental activists would really want them to do it. Yeah, that's a really big question. And I know that this question of finance, investing in nature, probably not something we really have time to discuss now, but there does seem to be quite a number of initiatives from global organizations, the World Bank, you know, this G20's infrastructure as an asset class, uh, maximizing finance for development and things, which when you look at it closely, there's there these clauses in there about you know de-risking investments there's uh, I, I just wonder whether you know the seeing 
global finance hungry for STG type investments would worry some people. Yeah, I mean, I think it should always give you pause for thought about where's the return coming from, what what is the what is pushing it in this way, right? Um, yeah, yeah. What, but it also what it also suggests to me is that other kinds of investment that have been the traditional forms of investment for these sorts of funding are no longer regarded as legitimate, right? And we've seen a really strong campaign on divestment from fossil fuel interests. For sure, yeah. And, and, yeah. and that it, it's not only because this is attractive spaces for capital investment because there is some kind of profit to be made out of being green, but it's because other investment opportunities are being closed down because they're no, no longer regarded as acceptable or legitimate by the public for all of the reasons that all of the environmental activists have, you know, and, and all of the hard yards that have been put in for the last 10 years on that question. So the two things for me go together, I think. It's like as capital divests from fossil fuel interests, partly because, you know, coal is just not economic anymore, where is it going to go? And in a sense, I would rather that it was going somewhere which was at least a bit green than somewhere which wasn't. And, you know, maybe that's my pragmatism coming out again. And maybe, you know, yes. <laughs> you know, maybe it just, you know, maybe we need to start somewhere with that. And maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, yeah, I mean, what, what might be worrying is, is the degree to which the states in the global south are being tied into these uh, massive investment schemes, the way to which they lose their fiscal power, their power yes. to ensure a just transition, yeah. to make sure that there are, you know, green, the kind of green projects, uh, you know, uh, look after uh, or equitable. I a yeah. whole series. Uh, maybe that's for an, another That will have to be for another time, but I, on that, I would definitely agree with you on that. There's a sort of um, debt, for, debt for nature and debt for climate kind of swaps, which t- disempower national governments and their communities from deciding what that should look like is definitely something we want to avoid. Yeah, yes. I, I would like to get your uh, view on, on the cities a little bit, because I know that's an area that you've, you've done a lot of interesting work and, and, and you're, you're passionate about. Mm. And I suppose you, you can see, I mean, I live in, in, in East London and we've had all these initiatives to you know, stop people driving here and there. And You can see how better air quality at a very simple level improves the quality of life and you know, all kinds of health outcomes and so forth. What is the logic? How, how do cities, how, how are they framing this climate issue? Because clearly this is the, I suppose, the global commons, you know, that, that getting the, the, the balance between what's going to directly impact the quality of, of life of people living in a city and what's contributing to what is a global commons question. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the the, the answer there is that, um, well, it's, it's two or threefold, really. But the, the first thing is to say that when, when we look at the urban question, we can see that it, a little bit like we were talking earlier about um, certain kind of fossil fuel interests and their role in the global climate. The same way with cities, you know, when we look, maybe 50, 80 cities in the world are responsible for, uh, you know, maybe 30, 35% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we're talking about very large, you know, very large numbers of the population living in some of the largest cities in the world, um, in, the, in the US and, and in China and uh, South Korea and so on and so forth. Uh, and so in a sense, you know, there, there is a group of cities where what they do has a, has a vital and, and almost, you know, immediate effect on, on the climate, you know, on the climate. But, and it's not just the city government itself. It's, of course, the population of those cities, the, their economies, their forms of consumption and so on and so forth. Um, so, so in a sense, you, you, 
the global commons is made up of everything that is happening in in the in all of our cities, but particularly in in a subset of them, which are very critical for us. But in terms of you know one of the things I think why it then ends up working at the city level to kind of couple climate change with issues like air pollution is that for almost every city there is another issue that they're trying to tackle that they can do together with tackling climate change. So whether it's air quality, which of course for many cities is a critical issue, whether it's about affordable energy for residents and, and homes that are affordable to heat, uh, whether it's about um, creating new kinds of mixed urban developments which bring you know living and working and nature closer together, uh, there are so many different ways in which cities have been able to kind of couple the climate agenda with other agendas which are important to them. And green jobs, of course, is another one, uh, and that's. But not all cities have to do it in the same way. You can do it in the way that works for your city to start with, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that they've been able to kind of translate that global commons issue into something that matters locally, while also showing that their city's taking action globally. And that has been kind of a powerful set of politics. Do you have a sense of a measure of what's the best way of aggregating or showing the impact of the changes that are happening in cities? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think there's some really interesting, um, some really interesting work going on to do that. We have all sorts of aggregation mechanisms now. There's the global covenant of mayors that collects all the city's commitments that they've been making to towards climate change, and similar efforts are currently underway to try to collect all of the commitments that cities will make to their work that they will do with nature, and. Some fantastic researchers who's not me is a woman called Angel Sue, who has done an amazing job of trying of creating a city's database, which tells you you, you can look at commitments that, that 10,000 cities have made and, she, and it compares them to one another. So, so there's some fantastic research going on. So as long as we collect this information, as long as these networks of cities that we're talking about can collect these information in relatively standardised ways, then the research community has got the tools to be able to tally and track the kind of progress that that's happening. Brilliant, brilliant. And what about coalitions of cities? How, how are they uh, constituted? Are they an important part of what's what's bringing together this consensus and this momentum? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, since the very beginning of cities' work on climate change, which is, dates back to the early 1990s, we've seen these networks of cities forming to both kind of show strength in numbers, if you like, to, to be able to learn from one another, share ideas, swap best practices, and so on and so forth. And they're now really quite a large number of networks of cities, uh, probably, you know, in sort of 20 or 30 different networks, which are focusing on different kinds of strands of this issue. But one of the things I think has been really interesting in the last two or three years in this space is that networks which were initially formed on relatively simplistic and potentially quite sort of, you know, uh, potentially on the edge of greenwash. I mean, uh, I've got many friends in these city networks and they wouldn't appreciate me, <laughs> me saying yeah. that. But, yeah. just, you know, with very much... They weren't, weren't very ambitious. Yeah, well, oh, there were big pledges, but not much behind it, right? Okay, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's, in a way, how you get politicians on board, and we know that. Yes. But one of the things that you're seeing now in some of these some of these leading networks in ICLE, which is a local governments for sustainability network, the C40 Climate Change Leadership Group for mayors, um, uh, there's the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance and others, 
is that they are now taking explicit stances on climate justice and explicit stances on how cities need to move towards not only reducing emissions in their own places, but to dealing with the consumption, uh, dealing with their own consumption and driving down consumption-based emissions, which is really ambitious. And again, beyond what we've seen happening at a national level. So both that explicit focus on climate justice as something that those city networks must um, deliver and a focus on how cities are going to deal with the uneven global footprint, I think is really important. And, and how much, is, of course, so many cities, so many different stories, yeah. but how, how much is coming from, from, from local communities? Yeah, I think that, yeah, again, very different stories. Um, and I think, again, maybe this is something where to start with some of these city networks were really kind of driven by political elites or particular interests within in, in urban civil services. But I think increasingly you can see an engagement with the idea that you can't really take cities forward on questions of their consumption without in, including communities in that. So, so can you tell me a little bit about the Naturevation project? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, Naturevation is a project that's been going on for four years. It's funded by um, the European Union through the Horizon 2020 programme and involves about 14 partners across Europe. And what we've been doing in that project is looking at how cities are trying to work with nature or use something which is called nature-based solutions. It's a kind of umbrella term for other things you might have heard of, urban green spaces, green infrastructure, blue infrastructure, all of these different kinds of, of names. And just trying to work out what it is that cities are now trying to do by working with nature. What are they trying to achieve? How far have they got? What kinds of uh, business models, governance arrangements and so on are they are they using? And we've been particularly interested to look at which different kinds of actors are getting involved in um, working right. with nature-based solutions. And one of the things we can see there is, is that somehow these kind of projects, which are around nature i've got a really you know really strong community um links to them we see you know maybe in contrast to kind of electric mobilities programs or solar panel programs or whatever a lot of the programs that we're looking at projects that we're looking at are either being driven by communities or have a very strong role for communities i think something like 25 percent of the projects that we've looked at out of a thousand in in europe have been led by community actors which is quite high for this Kind of, um, yeah. kind of area so yeah so some really interesting new coalitions of actors um, emerging where you see like utility companies local authorities and communities working together to bring areas of the city which might have been previously unaccessible into use daylighting rivers creating riverbank pathways introducing new forms of biodiversity into the city increasing resilience and so on and so forth that kind of thing it's fascinating because also, I guess, communities take time to make decisions and having the opportunity to work and build processes over time, it, it must be important because some of the more top-down approaches, you know, where people can sit around a table and make decisions it, compared to, I guess, at a community where, you know, the decision-making, you know, I mean, taking into account the interests of different people, different communities within the community, just inevitably does take time. Yeah, it does take time. I think some of the places where we've seen this work really to really interesting effect is where communities have been given some form of asset or some form of resource to start with. 
So um, a, a project in Utrecht, for example, in, in the Netherlands has given some areas of the city where the city council made a decision that we we want some new forms of nature or some some different uses of these um, open parks or spaces there. And they said to community groups around them, what would you like to do with this space? And giving a focal point to that and also handing over ownership is so important for, for actually providing something that communities can then get their teeth into and really feel they're not just part of a sort of talk shop, but there's something going to physically happen afterwards. So it's those, that's what I mean by those kind of interesting kind of new arrangements where we, we see this, you know, different kinds of forms of working with communities. It's not just consulting them about what the city council should do, right? It's about yeah. bringing them actually on board in terms of ownership, management, maintain, maintaining nature-based solutions over time. Fascinating, fascinating. So I, I know, Harriet, that you're interested in uh, experimentation or what you call governance by experimentation. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, what it looks like, and how it might be in contrast to previous approaches, which might be more planning oriented? Sure. Thanks, Virgil. I think the thing that we're talking about here is trying to find a name to bring together a whole set of things that have been happening in cities probably about over the last two decades, or some people would probably argue slightly earlier than that, where we see multiple different kinds of projects and interventions being the way in which cities, city leaders, municipal authorities, organisations of various different kinds from civil society through to corporates are intervening in the city in order to try out multiple different kinds of ways of building future sustainability so whether this is like electric bike schemes whether it's you know those scooter schemes that you see all over all over the streets and all over the papers whether it's uh, car sharing whether it's food growing projects uh, community gardens you know orchards all sorts of different things and now emerging in this kind of intervention type of style rather than somebody sitting down looking ahead saying okay where do we want to be in 10 years time mapping out the whole of the city thinking about where all interventions should go and and bringing everything together if you like first on paper and then secondly in practice here we see a reversal of that so we see it first in practice and then secondly on paper um, and and on the whole that's put down really as being a specific instance so lots of people notice these experiments but they don't think of them together as creating a different way of governing the city but when you add them all up and you look at it all together it's obvious that we are moving away from how we've governed the city in the past where we've tended to do it very much through kind of blueprint planning through instead to this more emergent experimental approach right right and, and to what extent does that take into account the needs, desires, interests of, uh, I guess, you know, residents or citizens? Yeah, I think this is what's really intriguing because some of these experiments are really community-driven. They really are about citizens uh, reclaiming space in cities, making their own interventions, trying to govern the city in their own image of what the future should be like. But others are obviously very much led by um, unelected, undemocratic uh, organisations, whether those might be non-governmental actors say um, developing projects in in you know you can if you take this to the global south you obviously see lots of external international actors intervening in cities in all sorts of ways which haven't necessarily involved 
um, communities there. But it's also happening in, in cities in the global north where, for example, you might see the, you know, probably people have seen those sort of driverless uh, car experiments which are happening in various different cities in North America um, through to other kinds of, of corporate landscapes. There's been a lot of concern about sidewalk labs being started by digital companies in various cities in North America as well. So definitely there's a kind of conflict, potential conflict here between a kind of democratic idea of the future city and a city that's experimental. I don't think experimentation is necessarily undemocratic, but it has to be managed. You know, we have to notice that it's happening and, and we have to want to intervene to make it more so. And what are the benefits of this approach? Well, some of the benefits are that you can have multiple different kinds of ideas about the future being tried out at once. So you can see multiple different visions and approaches, contested and conflicting ideas about what the future city should be, all being, you know, tried on for size, if you like, uh, and thought about. And the conflicts and trade-offs between them become obvious in practice rather than uh, kind of planning conflicts, which can take a very long time in a planning process um, and where in, in the end, maybe only a few voices get heard. So there are some advantages from that perspective. I think the other advantages are that by doing things in this kind of incremental, trying things on for size, seeing how we go, you can see what works in practice and you can accelerate those things which are working, which are delivering for sustainability and social justice, and you can abandon those things which don't um, more rapidly if you've got the right kind of learning environments to enable that to happen. So both the idea that you can get variety, a kind of ecology, if you like, of different ways of thinking about our future cities, which of course we've always had, um, but much more focused around sustainability ideas. Uh, that together with the idea that you can have this kind of rapid learning environment being developed for cities is potentially their advantage. Right, right. And, and I guess you feel this is a, a coming phenomenon that we're already starting to see it. You think we're going to see a lot more of this? Yes, I do. I mean, in, in a sense, I think it's being, dri it's being driven, um, you know, fundamentally, I think it's being driven by two or three things. One of them is the, is the, dispersal of authority in modern society so the actors that have the legitimacy and the capacity to act are no longer just governmental so we need private sector actors we need community sector actors to to uh, intervene for future of our cities um, and they you know they're, they're adopting these more experimental approaches and secondly I think it's being driven because unlike a kind of planning man mindset where you you think about the future as is relatively stable compared to the present. You have an idea that uh, what is going to happen between now and the future is some form and vision of progress. We're not in that situation anymore. Our future is quite indeterminate. We're not clear, you know, what climate change might mean, what, you know, obviously we're speaking in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, you know, what these kinds of issues might mean, means that that future horizon is much cloudier. And so we're trying to act on the future at a time when it's indeterminate. And I think experimentation is a means of trying to navigate that challenge as well. So those two things, that fragmentation of authority or its dispersal and the idea of the indeterminacy of the future are, for me, the two things that are driving experimentation, which means I think it's not really a choice anymore. It is just how we are going to be governing our future cities from now for, for at least a few decades. It's very interesting. Just connected to that, is there anything you can say in general about the governance? You're talking about you know, new actors coming in, you know, smaller, uh, maybe less powerful, uh, community-based kind of 
organisms, as it were, engaging with some, you know, pretty large actors, powerful actors. Is there anything emerging there of interest? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is emerging is that sometimes those powerful actors are recognising that to actually achieve their wider goals and ambitions, they can't do it without partnerships and forms of participation with those other actors who've traditionally been seen to be less powerful. I think a lot of that is to do with their, if you like, their licence to operate and their social legitimacy as organisations, so that there's increasing scrutiny over their behaviour towards these other actors in society, and that is opening up possibilities for actors which perhaps in previous times have been less powerful to have more of a voice but on the other hand of course you know the actors that have capital resources and and interests in the status quo will continue to protect those um, and how we kind of open those up to more critical scrutiny i think remains a challenge for us you know for example it remains challenging to think about how housing development is conducted how how and why do we organise the the provision of of public goods such as such as shelter or infrastructure in cities, and who stands to gain from that, um, and why? So th- those remain very big questions, I think. Um, and it's not it's certainly not true that sort of bottom up groups and and individual sort of interventions can deal with kind of bigger questions on their own but they might be the way to sort of navigate and try out different kinds of possibilities and show what different kinds of future are possible yes it's very interesting and i suppose the other uh piece of uh, another piece of the of the jigsaws that were is these uh, foreshortened time horizons where decisions need to be made quickly and urgently which are probably not entirely congruent with a more dispersed you know uh, power and communications approach i think that that is interesting because on the one hand the thing about experimentation is that you can get it done relatively quickly i mean because you don't have to necessarily go through all of the same formal processes that a planning process or a long-term investment cycle would require you to do so right so on one hand that reduces its democratic legitimacy but on the other hand it allows you to have sets of tools and and interventions that you can make and even during the pandemic of course we've seen that with roads being closed and you know uh, that space being dedicated to other kinds of land use and so on and so forth you can do things relatively quickly whether you can do enough is different so you might be able to act quickly with experimentation but not to enough scale planning or those kinds of more top-down approaches might give you the scale but actually you might get stuck in a planning conflict over a new you know a new purpose for land in the city for over 10 years and then you've already not acted what's next for you Harriet you've got a very full (laughs) agenda already yeah well I mean you know next next year I I did really (laughs) really make a bad mistake in about um in January this year I bought a really nice t-shirt with 2020 in gold letters on it because I was like focused on both the climate change and biodiversity processes that were going to be happening this year and really thinking about how can we use the knowledge that we're generating in in the academic community to help these global processes which were supposed to be happening this year. That was a bad t-shirt to buy, right? (laughs) So I now need a new one which says 2021. Um, (laughs) I'm really, you know, what I'm really focused on in the immediate term is trying to translate some of these ideas and some of this work with, with the teams and colleagues that I work with into things which are useful for those who are negotiating the next round of the biodiversity convention, which will be should have been agreed this year in October, but will be agreed next year. So this is, you know, 
what we really want to do, and I'm part of a whole network of people doing this, is we really want to make sure that the role that cities can play in, in really turning the tide of the loss of nature is really firmly embedded within that agreement because that's going to set the stage for the next 10 years and we really think there's possibility there so that in terms of a kind of driver for me I need a new t-shirt but that's what I will be doing <laughs> and also of course um you know hoping to contribute to the to the Glasgow um, conference of the parties on climate change which obviously being held in the UK and also with a focus on the intersection between nature and climate so those are my kind of short-term goals is to try and do some work translating everything we've done into ways that's useful and then, you know, looking uh, longer term ahead, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm still fascinated by the question of how cities are changing in relationship to climate change and what it will mean to live an urban life under conditions of climate change. And, and I want to be taking some more of that work forward. I think, you know, I think the cli climate question raises all sorts of different challenges for cities and how we're used to thinking about our urban lives. I'm particularly interested in what remains um, a private decision and what remain and what becomes public so questions like you know that's where the questions of consumption come up right so it's our yeah. daily consumption and the consumption of businesses you know this is not just about individuals for me this is about you know where where do we draw the line between what is a private decision and a public decision in a climate change world i think it's a really profound question and i'm sure it'll keep me going for quite some time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe I can come back and talk to you later and see how you're getting on with that. I, I, I wish you the very best with all of that uh, really important work. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Fogel. It's been a pleasure. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>